Luke 22, starting in verse 62, 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. One day came the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God, then? He said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What's going on? Let's just take it out of context and do what we want with it. Sound good? Guys, you got to help me out. No. Come on, I have one cup of coffee. I'm tired. I need, I need y'all today. You ready? I don't have a clever intro. No jokes to hook you in. This is just... This is, no voices? I hear voices. <laughs> Stop it. I'm sorry. That's my best friend. So we're in the trial phase. Jesus has, has been captured. I'm joking, just in case you're wondering. It's not my best friend. Anyway, we'll move on. I'm joking, totally. Back to the focus. Jesus is, has been captured in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what you'll see as you read the four Gospels together is there are six, technically two, but, but reality, six trials Jesus goes through. There's a Jewish phase and a Gentile phase. So we're, we're looking at the Jewish phase in Luke's Gospel. And if you remember, we had Annas and Caiaphas last week. Maybe he was brought to the high priest. And these were sham trials. They took place in the middle of the night, probably 1 a.m. to 4 or 5 a.m. And what they're doing is trying to determine the charges they would lay on Jesus so that Rome would kill Jesus. The Jews couldn't kill anymore. Rome had removed capital punishment. Can you kill those fans for me, big... They, they took capital punishment away from the Jews, so they have to get charges to have them executed. And so they've, they've summoned the Sanhedrin, the council. And you see in verse 66, when day came, right? But before the day came, notice what's happening to Jesus. <clears throat> they're mocking him, they're beating him, they're blindfolding him, they're yelling at him to prophesy, they're blaspheming him. And, and we could have sat there for the whole day, and we could have talked about the sovereignty of God and the, the plans of evil men actually fulfilling scripture. This is Isaiah. This is Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 being fulfilled. This is also God using the plans of, of evil men for his glory and for good ultimately because he intended this to happen. This is also the, the, the suffering Savior. This is Jesus who not only helps us, but knows what it's like to suffer, to be beaten, to be abused. There's so many comforts to be had in here. Amen? Amen. We could spend all day there, but I'll let you dig into that. So we come to the trial phase, and as we come to the, the trial phase, I want you to notice that God established certain principles for law and order amongst his people. Deuteronomy 6 and following. And some of the things he established... You couldn't hold a trial at night. You needed two, to, two plus witnesses to be convicted. Capital offense, you had to wait a full day to execute the person. Self-incrimination was not allowed. If you're listening closely, you're realizing they're breaking all of these rules. These are people who are out to kill Jesus in sin without even following their, their own 
practices and entrusted to them by God. And so we, we come to this and, and we see the people begin to ask Jesus some questions. And in the questions, there are three titles. I don't know if you notice these. The Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. What, what is Christ? What's Jesus' first name? Who said that? Rich? When's the theology award? Thank you. Jesus' first name? Jesus. Last name? Christ, right? Middle initial? H. Y'all grew up around lost people. I grew up in the world, don't we? Right? City kid. Let's say lost. Jesus' last name actually would technically be a little bit confusing. It would be Bar-Joseph, Bar if you want to Anglicanize it, son of Joseph, even though he wasn't really son of Joseph. Bar-Yahweh would be more appropriate. His name was Jesus. Christ was a title. Do you know what the title Christ means? We say it all the time, Jesus Christ. Well, what is, it actually turns the profane use of it into the most ridiculous, ironic stupidity you'll ever hear. When people use Jesus' name in vain, they're yelling out, Jesus Christ. God saves as the anointed one. It's one heck of reverse, pathetic vulgarity, isn't it? The Christ, it means anointed one. It has kingly overtones. Luke has brought us through many times to let us know Jesus is the Christ. It's a name bestowed by God upon the one through whom he would save people from their sin. The name bestowed by God upon the one he has consecrated to save people from their sin. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. And it says right here, if you are the Christ, verse 67, tell us. And he says, if I tell you, you'll not believe. And if I ask, you'll not answer. If I ask what? Who do you say I am? They won't answer. But slow down a minute. Do you realize Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the one consecrated by God to save people from their sins, from the wrath of God, so we might live with him forever? Why did the people not know he was the Christ here? We'll get to that in a minute, but just think about that. You need more evidence? We'll get to that. Then it says, son of man. Y'all heard that expression before, especially if you've been around a while. Luke brings it up several times. It's Jesus' most, most favorite title to use of himself, the son of man. We even sing a song by Andrew Peterson, son of God, son of man. You wonder why I don't have an album releasing anytime soon? I was a music teacher at the School for the Deaf. They fired me. Anyway, back to the text. It comes from Daniel. Daniel 7, 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What does it mean he's the son of man? He's a divine ruler and judge. A man whose glory comes from his divinity. You hear that? A man whose glory comes from his divinity. How's that work? 
the divine ruler and judge. Do you understand who Jesus is, not only the Christ, but the Son of Man, the divine ruler and judge? And he says, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said to him, Are you the Son of God? Why did they change it to Son of God? Well, because they know what he means by Son of Man. These are theologian Jews. They know Daniel, and they want to make sure there's no wiggle room in here. Are you saying what I think you're saying? You're saying you're the divine ruler and judge, and look at his answer. You say that I am. Why is Jesus being elusive? Why didn't he say, I am? Why didn't he say, yep? Why didn't he say, because you know Jesus spoke in Old English, hitherto wherefore art thou I am? Why, why does he say you say that I am? It's a figure of speech. It's kind of like, I am, but you don't know what you're saying. You've experienced this perhaps. Someone says to you, are you a Christian? I don't like that question. Because I'm like, yes, but you don't really know what you're asking, do you? You mean, am, am I one of those people who, who goes to church sometimes and, and uses Christianese and watches the news and goes, oh, our, our, our prayers and thoughts go out to you? No, I'm not that type of Christian. Am I the type of Christian who thinks Jesus is one of many options? No, I'm not that type of Christian. I'm the biblical type, but so, yeah, I am, but you don't know what you're really asking. Said another way, you say that I am. That's what Jesus is saying. I, I, I'm the son of God, but you don't know what you're talking about. I'm truly God. I'm truly man. I'm Messiah. I'm Menachem, the comforter of Isaiah 40. I am he who was promised in Eden. I am. You don't really understand that. But yeah, I am the son of God. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Look at the irony there. What, what should be going on with that? We believe. We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. What further testimony do we need? He is the Christ. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. This is Jesus. Well, what more do we need? Forgive us. But that's not what they mean, is it? What they mean is, we got him. We got him right where we want him. Call the Romans, get Pilate up. Have the council lock him in. He's going down. We got him. How? how? Let's sit on this for a minute. I have a book in my office, good book. I recommend it, sort of. It's one of the best-selling Christian apologists. I'd actually recommend it, but I'll put a, a caveat on it. It is one of the best-selling Christian apologetic books with the worst title ever. Evidence that demands a verdict. You know the book? No, Strobel falls into the same category here. Um, what is his book? The G. Uh, G Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Lee Strobel. What is his book? It's the first book, Case for Christ. 
They're good books, but here's the problem with the premise of the books. Evidence that demands a verdict. Well, there's a whole lot of evidence, and it got a verdict. Why, why didn't they look at the evidence? You, you brought dead people back to life. Whoa. You, you, made, you made food out of nothing. You, you explain scripture so clearly. You perform signs and wonders as prophesied in scripture that you were. Okay, I get it. I saw your resume. You are the Christ. Why didn't they believe that way? How often do we try to present the gospel as this? Do you know that, that God created everything? And that Jesus rose from the dead, and, and there's so much clear evidence that he really rose from the dead. Why would the apostles be willing to die for a lie? Right? Good point. If he didn't really rise, why wouldn't someone have produced the body? Good point, right? What, what, we know where he was killed. We know where he was buried. It would be so easy to disprove. Why? why? How did they get by the Roman guards? How do, you, how do you overpower Roman guards as some chicken fishermen and take the body and hide it so no one can find it? The clear evidence points to the fact Jesus rose from the dead. Here's what you get when you share that with lost people. All right, like you got a good point. They just add that piece to their buffet style of religion. Maybe you rose from the dead. That's awesome. I'm glad that works for you. You ever experience this? Why? The issue is not evidence. You could have no more. Judas, three years with Jesus. You think he was like, ah, I need a little bit more evidence. You know, I'm a, I'm a little bit confused on this one little item. Like when you made the fish, why would it still tails? Right? It's never been about evidence. Yet when we share the gospel, don't we try to present evidence and get people to say, you're right, it carries the day. And then you wonder, why don't people believe? Because it's never been about the evidence. It's about suppression of truth. Here's where apologetics goes, biblically. Your view of life makes no sense. It's totally irrational. Totally irrational. Example. Well, I think when people die, they go to a better place and they try their best. Okay? You respond. It makes no sense. First of all, what do you base that on? Like wishful thinking? Like what, what, what is your foundation? What's your anchor on which you base? When people die, they go to a better place. It's just because you want it to be? Well, I, I, I want to be a, a, a bear. <laughs> Wrong noise. You're not a bear. You're, you're, anyway. Like, yes, there's a part of that that we desire to be true, but what makes it true? And then can you define for me what's good? What, what's good enough? Is it like all of the time, 50%, 75%? Like, how do you know if you've been good enough? And then what happens if you're not good enough? Have you ever met someone that wasn't good enough? Says, I believe people go to a better place when they die if they try their best, but I didn't try my best, so I'm going to hell. Have you ever met that person? And so what you then pivot to the person is into the gospel through the biblical account. We all desire to go to a better place when we die because we know this can't be all there is, and this is just very hard. It, it, it couldn't have been made this hard to be, and then we just disappear. There, there has to be more. 
And the good news of Scripture, the good news of the Gospel, is not only is there more, but there's a way to actually not only go to a better place after you die, but to be with God face to face, to have all of your desires satisfied, and not only after you die, but before you die, to know God and be known by God as his child. And would you like to hear how this is so in this good news of great joy, which if you actually stop and think about it, is the most sane thing you'll ever hear, because it's the only, it's the only worldview that fits into the reality in which we live. What's the evidence? Here's the pivot. We try to present people with Jesus' resume, and we ask them if they want to hire Jesus to be their personal Lord and Savior. Do you know how heretical that is? As if Jesus is sitting there, we're like, shh, quiet, I'm reading your resume. So you created everything, did you, big shot? Uh-huh. By you and through you and for you. Woohoo! Oh, oh, no. What's this nonsense? You say that you owe, you sit over me and you're going to judge me? Nah, you're fired. I like this one, this little God. It's this little God who will do what I want, when I want, how I want. If I just kind of appeal. Do you ever think about it? Who do you say Jesus is misses the gospel? The gospel is this. Do you know who Jesus says you are? Remember his name, one of his titles was Son of Man, a divine ruler and judge. Who sits in judgment over who? Do you sit in judgment over Jesus? We'll get to this in a minute. Or does he sit in judgment over you? See, here's the problem with American... The, the ter- you ever hear terms like evangelical? Do you know what evangelical means? So it's like back to the question, are you a Christian? I don't even know how to answer that. People say to me, what, what, kind, of, what kind of church do you pastor? You know how tricky of a question that is to answer for people? What kind of church? Well, there are many ways I could answer that. I could say it's a, a Christian church. I could say it's an independent Bible church. I could say for those more theologically astute, it's a Reformed church. But people don't know what you're talking about, do they? Wow, that point just slipped out of my head here. What we tend to do is miss the reality of how we share the gospel. So back to the term evangelical. The reality is the term evangelical in majority means an Arminian-based theology. If you really stop and think about this, what do I mean by Arminian-based theology? I'll give you a little theology lesson. It's important to land this well for enjoying Christ and proclaiming Christ. Arminian theology is Calvinism, Arminianism. Calvinism emphasizes the, the biblical doctrine of sovereign, the sovereignty of God, where the Arminian theology tends to minimize the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. How does this come about? Well, do you trust in Christ and then you're saved? Or has God chosen you and that's why you're saved? Is, is God sovereign over everything, Calvinism, biblical theology, I would call it, reformed theology, or is God sovereign over everything except your ability to make choices? This is Arminian theology to root level. Meaning that God gives you a freedom of choice of whether or not to accept or reject the gospel. Now, now don't think this is some sort of idiot, idiot, idiocy in theology. There, there's, there's a thought into it. It's erroneous on this era, but there's thought into it because you'll hear texts like Jesus saying, Who do you say I am? Repent and believe. How, how are we? Repent and believe. We're, we're called to give a response to the gospel. So don't minimize, don't share the gospel in the sense of, this is who Christ is. Now we'll find out if God chose you for salvation. 
Because you're a fool. Repent and believe. Who do you say Christ is? It's a question where to ask people. But here's the beauty of it. And here's the maturing of it. And here's where we lose it in our gospel proclamation. When I came to faith, I assumed I came to faith because I heard the evidence of the gospel. I understood who I was, who Christ was. I trusted in Christ and I was saved. On February 29th, I could tell you the time and the place. As I grew my faith, I realized, wait a minute. See, here's the problem. I could tell you my first time of an awareness of the fact that I was saved, but I don't really know when I was saved. Because my salvation doesn't rest upon my profession of faith in Christ or my choosing Christ. My salvation rests in the fact that God chose me, and it bore fruit, at least in my eyes, to see it when I cried out to him for forgiveness. But in order to actually cry out to him for forgiveness, here's the reality. I only had to be able to draw spiritual breath, so I was already alive. Do you see what I'm saying there? Here's what the, what the danger is. When we share the gospel, are we looking for a miracle whereby the Holy Spirit regenerates a person? Or are we trying to, to convince a person that they should place their trust in Christ? If that, you will struggle because the power lies in the person, not in the one who regenerates God himself. What is, what is this all about, Pastor? Why are you talking about this? Because look, these folks had more evidence than you will ever see. Yet they chose to suppress the truth. And here's what we're after in evangelism. Here's what we're after in apologetics. People don't need evidence. They need eyes to see the evidence that sets before them. And God, by his common grace, gives us common ground to meet them on, to begin a conversation, if you will. Everyone, Romans 1, knows there is a God. They just don't know who this God is. They don't know who the Christ is, who the Son of Man is, who the Son of God is. We proclaim that to them, but we find the common points to get there. Life is hard, isn't it? Life is, life is painful, isn't it? Ask the lost person, what do you do with that? How do you understand that? What's the point of suffering? Why, why, why do seemingly good people die and bad people succeed? What do, you, what do you do with that? How do you land that? And you know what the lost person does? They come up with all sorts of crazy things because they're going to suppress the truth. They do not want to admit that they were created by God, that they are accountable to God, that they stand condemned before God, and the only way they can be right with God is through a Savior. That's what we're fighting for. That's what Jesus is proclaiming to us. That's what the, the Romans and the Jews were denying. But understand, our job in this is simply to proclaim the gospel with logical consistency. We try to prepare ourselves for all of the questions people might throw at us. Well, I was reading the Bible, and I know that there's a discrepancy in the number of troops in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, so I know that we can't trust the Bible. In fact, the Bible's full of errors and contradictions. You know what that is? I always say to that, oh my goodness, you got me, I'm done. Got to find a new job, thanks for sharing. I'll often say to the person, it's full of them, is it? And they'll say, yes, I mean, would you just mention one or two, maybe we can talk. Well, well I, I don't know where they are, but I could find them. Well, here, I'll wait. Let, let's, let's talk about it. Because what I understand is this is a lost person in need of a mighty God to save them. They're, they're not mad at me. They're fighting to suppress the truth. And when you turn on a light, you ever catch somebody doing a bad thing? 
right? That's exactly what you're running into. And so our joy is to be reminded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves with our own lips. Hmm. Suppression of the truth. It's not a lack of evidence. There's ample evidence. We need to understand how to present the evidence going to the gospel. But the goal is not to show them how the evidence proves Jesus is the Christ. The goal is to show them the gospel and then explain to them how the way they look at life, namely suppressing the truth, is irrational and only the biblical account is rational. That's kind of the deep end of the pool. I hope that made some sense. The joy in it comes from the fact that if you are saved, you're saved because God chose you. And if God chose you, he will never unchoose you. And you can know with absolute certainty you are saved because you know that God chose you. You're not wondering if your choosing of him really took. Did you sign all the lines? Did you initial all the right places? Did you cross your T's and dot your I's? Or has God got you on a technicality? When you walk down the aisle, did you start on your right foot or your left foot? How do you know if you were really repentant enough? How many times do you have to come forward? How many times do you have to actually ask for forgiveness for that current little sin that you can't get over? And are you really saved? Do you still have sin? Well, if you're going through the Arminian bent, I don't know. Good luck, because it rests on you. You go on with the biblical bent, praise Jesus, per what Patty was saying this morning, you're going to mess up a whole lot of times. But your salvation doesn't rest on how well you do, it rests on how perfectly Jesus has done on your behalf. Now, is there evidence of new life in Christ when you're saved? Absolutely. God is glorified through sanctifying his people, but your salvation doesn't rest on you choosing God. It doesn't rest on your examination of the evidence. It rests on God examined you and found you wanting, so what did he do? He sent the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, to save sinners. Do you see that? Now, let's pivot it in-house for a minute. Do you ever, as a believer, not for salvation, but in life in general, sit in judgment on God? Do you ever judge his word and find it lacking? Do you ever judge his will and find it wanting? You see, here's what's so important. We do, but the question is, can we notice where we do, repent of it, and trust in him more fully? Well, where do you fail to trust in God's word? You have to share a personal example, but I'll wait. I'm an expert on self-talk. If you ever want, ever want to learn about heretical self-talk to cause you to, to struggle, I, meet with me, you know, any day during the week in the morning, I can catastrophize anything you got going on. Yeah? You, I, I was a kid who would wake up in the morning, oh man, my leg hurts, my head immediately, it's a tumor, things going to spread by next Thursday, oh my gosh, my friends will never see me again, I'm never going to get to enjoy my bike, the blood's going to cut off, can, can five-year-olds get blood clot? This is me as a little kid, right? Remember Arnold Schwarzenegger? It is not a tumor! I'm the kid in class going, but it might be! It might be! You never know! Well, you see, that sort of mindset sits in judgment on God. Because behind it, deep-seated in it, is a mindset that says, he's not really good like he says he's good. He doesn't know what he's doing. Or you, you can't really trust him because, you know, he's a busy guy. See what's going on there? 
You ever, you ever look at yourself in the mirror and go, man, I stink. Or maybe you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, man, God had a good day the day he made me. Right? They're both pride. It's both too much focus on yourself. And, and they're both missing the reality of the truth of God and how God sees you and who you really are. You ain't that great and you ain't that bad, but you have far more worth than you ever realized. Well, what we're doing is we're sitting in judgment and we're determining whether we agree or disagree with God. You have a book in the Bible you just don't like. Careful with that. Because that's telling you, quit talking about that stuff. Nobody cares. Talk about this stuff. Grandpa, nobody wants to hear that boring story again. Tell us about the time when you went to, 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 to Normandy, Stormy Beaches. We like that story. Well, first, he's not your grandpa. And second, every word of God is, is a gift to us. But, but what I'm after is, well, what about where you know God's will, but you just decide, nah, I know better. You know those, those little areas of sin that, that tempt you in? Yeah, that's going to really give you true joy. And if you trust Jesus, it's not going to work out so well. If you really give to Jesus of, of your time like he calls you to, well, you can't get done what you want. Your kingdom's going to fall apart. You can't trust Jesus on that. You, come on, you know what you've got to do. You know, you know where I'm going? Do you know why we do that? That's who we are in our flesh. That's who we are in Adam. We fight to suppress the truth. We convince ourselves, nobody's looking. Nobody will know. You know those things you think about in your head that you would never tell anybody? Well, they're all on your Google history. Can you imagine? Don't imagine it's reality. If Google, can you ever see these articles where Google will anonymously look through someone's search history? I was reading an article where they shared it was the saddest thing. It was this young lady who, she had a cat that died, she got pregnant, had an abortion, she went into depression, she was considering suicide. How do you know all this? Her Google searches. Well, our, our hearts are, are, are a mess. In the flesh, they're wicked and deceitful above all things. But in Christ, we have the ability to see the truth, not suppress the truth. To rest in the truth, not, not try to create a false truth. And here's the battle. We're suppressing and we're able to unsuppress. And we need one another for this. We need to be reminded that our job is not to sit in judgment on God, but God has sat in judgment on us. He found us lacking, he found us guilty, and he forgave us in Christ. And then we need to remember who Christ is. You know, this is so simple, so basic, so repetitive week by week, and we forget it so quickly. He's the Christ. He's anointed by God to save people from their sin as a king. He saves us by himself, from himself, for himself. I, I stole that line years ago from someone. I don't know who it was. I love it. I, I don't, I, one day I think it might be a guy named Paul Washer. I'm not 100% sure. I didn't make it up on my own. He saves us by himself, from himself, and for himself. Isn't that marvelous? Why? He chose you to be his very own. He's a son of man. He's a divine ruler and judge. You ever see something that's wrong and you know it's wrong and you want it to be made right? 
usually love someone else, not yourself. Amen? You ever see something and it's just flat wrong and you want it to be dealt with? Well, Jesus saw it too. And he will deal with it. But he also saw you and dealt with you. By grace. Not by carrying out his judgment upon you, but by taking the judgment you deserve upon himself. Why, would, why is he standing trial? So that you and I would be saved. He didn't need the trial of the Jews and the, Gentile, and the Gentiles. He used them to carry out his plan perfectly to take the wrath of God upon himself. So he might place his righteousness upon us. Amen? Then you look at verse 63 and 65. They're holding Jesus in custody and mocking him and they beat him and they blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? I've not, well, I'm not going to get into a little snarky comment there because never mind, stay focused. Whoop, talking out loud, yep. You want to talk about injustice and police brutality? Can I reread it for you? They were holding Jesus in custody, mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. If I was Jesus, first, the whole world would be in a whole lot of trouble. If someone wronged me, like if I was surrounded by like a pack of preschoolers, and they started spitting on me and punching me. I gotta be honest. At some point, I would knock them kids down, right? Like, if they hit me with a spike club and spitting in my face and punching me, at some point, I'd be like, you little fool. I'd start kicking and smacking. I'd be calling for the dogs. I'd be like, oh, I'm very conflicted, but they're bad little kids. So like, right? Like, the temper would come out. Jesus, at any moment in time, could have just bang, right? He would have been the greatest heavyweight champion in the world. Can you imagine Jesus stepping into the ring? He'd just come in, right? He'd ride a donkey down the aisle. They'd be singing like amazing grace. I'll get back on the text. What I'm after here is, why would he go through this? Why did Jesus let people hold him in custody? Why did he let people mock him and beat him? Why did he let people blindfold him and blaspheme him? Why did he let them do that? Because he came to save people just like that. I can't look down on these people because I'm one of those people. We have the same ancestry in Adam. I was born hating God. I didn't want to live for the glory of God. I wanted God to live for the glory of John. I wanted God to get off my throne and do my bidding as opposed to me bow before him and do his bidding. Come on now. But in his grace and mercy, the Messiah, who is the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, forgave me, made me anew, allowed me to see the truth which I was suppressing. The truth of my sin, the truth of his holiness, the truth of my condemnation, the truth of his wrath, the truth of the cross, the truth of forgiveness, the truth of mercy, the truth of grace, the truth of new life in Christ, the truth of the reality of who this Jesus really is. The Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Way, way, way back in the day, and I'll close here. I met this, this girl 
when I was in college. Her name was Laura Cameron. And, and she, was, she was stalking me, really what it boiled down to. She, she tells a different story, but I like my story better. It was a, a crowd of, of ladies who were always following me around campus, you know, and I had a, I had a higher security because I couldn't get to and from class on time. I mean, it was, it was awful. And she was always like fighting through the crowd. Ooh, and then I turned and looked, and she'd fall over. <laughs> That's how I tell the story. She tells it a little different. But I remember when, when we first started getting to know each other. And in hindsight, I, I, I'm thinking out loud, I see some problems. I remember one of the first things we did is we went from the gym on campus, and she made me carry like four gallons of water from the Wegmans back to her dorm. I, and, and see, I was so smitten, I actually carried the water, right? Now I'd be like, you're kidding me? That's one of the kids. Call Amazon. We got Amazon now. But it was so many weeks and months and years, you get to know a person. You hear their stories, you learn about their personality, you see behind the scenes, you, you're so smitten with the person, you want to know as much as you can about them, share as much as you can about yourself with them, so you can enjoy each other. Now, I know a whole lot about her, but every once in a while, you still learn something new. She's just a regular, ordinary person. How much more so the God of the universe? I love my wife dearly. She's the best lady on the planet. But the reality is, not in my eyes, because I have issues still, but Jesus is better than Laura. And I will spend all of eternity getting to know him and never fully plumbing the depths of who he is, and he already knows who I am. See, the fear in dating someone is they might find out something about you that is repulsive to them and just be like, eh, I think we need a break. Well, Jesus knows everything about you, and he doesn't say, I think we need a break. He says, I think you need to see how much I actually love you because you don't see it yet. You and I get to spend the rest of our lives, if we steward them well, letting go of the truth that we're trying to suppress so we might see Jesus more clearly in reality. Here's the kicker. You cannot do it on your own. The Holy Spirit does not work in the life of an independent believer in isolation the same way he works in the life of a believer living in fellowship with one another. Because we need the counsel of one another to say to one another, why don't you lift your hand off of that and see what's under there? It's not as bad as you think. It's far more wonderful than you can imagine. You can trust Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. But above all of those things, he is your friend, he is your savior, he is your king, he is your God, and you are his child. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, when it was acceptable to have this council, the assembly of the elders, the Sanhedrin, of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And, he, and they said to him, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from our own lips. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that by your grace, 
we who are saved have heard your testimony and been given eyes to see it. That we are able, by your miraculous work, Holy Spirit of regeneration, to be able to know the truth, to understand the truth, and to rest in the truth. Lord, how far more kind you are than we realize, how far more gracious and merciful, how far more powerful. You take dead things and make them alive. You take the unlovely and make it lovely. You take what is disgusting and vile and make it beautiful in your eyes. God, you took enemies and made them into friends, and you did not do it because we chose you and sought you out. You did it because you sought us out, having chose us before the foundation of the world. Father, help us to rest in the reality of who we are in you, to marvel at the beauty of who you truly are, and to walk in the reality of our new identity in you. Lord, help us to see lost people as you see them. Help us to pray for them. <clears throat> Help us to love them. Help us to share the gospel with them. Help us to understand that while we are responsible to bring the gospel to them, we are not responsible to save them, for that is a work that we cannot do. That is a miracle. It requires you, Holy Spirit, to cause them to be born anew. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that. We pray for those we know well, that we live next door to, that we work alongside, that we love dearly, even in our very own homes, who do not yet know you, that we would rest in the reality of who you are, proclaim the gospel to them in every opportunity we have, walk before, walk following you before them, so they might see how we live in your power. And we pray that through such Holy Spirit, you might save them. Help us to stop trying to convince people that you are who you say you are and rather proclaim to people the reality that you are who you say you are and invite them to trust in you. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to save wicked people like those who sat in judgment upon you and people just like me, people like every person you have ever saved. And thank you, Lord, that when you save us, you make us new. You don't make us practically perfect right away, but positionally you do. And then little by little, day by day, week by week, month by month, even year by year, little by little, at times seeming with the slowest progress of any at all, you work perfectly to conform us to your image. You prune sin away from us and conform us to the image of Christ so we might live as he lived in his humanity, as you lived, Lord Jesus. Help us, forgive us, strengthen us, encourage us, Forgive us for the times we sit in judgment upon you. Forgive us for the times when we tell you what we are going to do and help us to rest in you, rejoice in you, walk with you. Help us, Jesus. Comfort us, Jesus. Strengthen us, Jesus. Our Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, our friend, our Savior, our Lord and King, our brother. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Which closing us with? Holy, holy.